And here's by far one of the most pivotal key statements in this story. Chapter 12, verse 1. So Yahweh sent Nathan to David. That's intentional. Who's doing the sending now? The most absolute power in the entire universe. You think you're all that, David? You think you've become the most powerful being in the world that can just move people around on a chessboard? I am the real chess player. And I control the board. I invented the board. I created the board. But I'm not sending for my selfish abuse of power. I'm sending for justice. And there's a big difference here. And so the prophet, who always supersedes the power of the king, is now being sent to David. And this is the second time we've seen Nathan in this story as he comes into the picture. Now, Nathan doesn't come straight out and accuse him. Nathan tells a story. He says, there's two men. There's a really wealthy man who had lots of sheep and lots of money and that kind of stuff. And he was next door to another guy who just was this poor man. He had one sheep, one little ewe lamb. And he loved this lamb like his own pet. He brought it into his house. He took care of it like you do your cat and dog, let it sleep on his lap, fed it from his hand, loved it. Now one day these guests come over to the rich man's house and the rich man needed to feed them. So he took the other man's lamb and he slaughtered it and he fed it to his guests. Verse 5. Then David became very angry at this man. And he said to Nathan, As surely as Yahweh lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he committed this cold-hearted crime, he must pay for the lamb four times over. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Why did Nathan do this? You know when you first accuse somebody of doing something? Most of the time we, or they, do what? They deny it. No, I didn't do that. Oh, it's not that. Or we justify it. Well, it's not. You're blown out of proportion. That's not that big of a deal. Or my favorite is, you do it too. We're all guilty of all three of those at different times in our life. And you immediately throw out the defenses because there's nothing more wounding to your pride than somebody pouring out, pointing out a moral sin or a flaw. And our pride does not allow instant humility and repentance. Sometimes you've been right at the moment where God has you and you're just right and you do. And you respond that way immediately. But our default is not that. Our default is we cannot admit that we're wrong. That is hard for us. And so we go into self-justification mode. How much more so with the most absolute power in Israel who's already been abusing his power? So what Nathan doesn't start off with is a rebuke, even though David would be in a very dangerous place to go at the prophet and say, no, you're wrong. But at the same time, David's not thinking straight either. Nathan tells a story where David will condemn himself. And then when he says that you are that person, all that self-justification goes out the window. That might be something we're trying next time with somebody. Just tell a story first. Get them enraged and angry. And let them condemn themselves and be like, you know, it's kind of like what you did there. And you, don't, you don't really have words for that anymore. We're going to find Joab is going to try that too. He's not going to do as well. 
there's obviously an art form to it because Nathan pulls off really well and Job tries to do it and he just fumbles all over the place with it. But that's what he does. And David's anger, his, his wrath against this man, the outside evaluation of seeing it in another person's life is enough for David to realize, oh crap, I'm screwed up. What David has just done has like topped the list in the greatest sins of the Bible. Murder, rape, abuse of power, autonomy. This is in the upper Ten Commandments. These are the, these are the sins that bring the death penalty. And you don't get any more violation of the law, any more ungodly, any more sinful than all these combinations together. And yet in the midst of all that, the minute Nathan says this, David's going to say, I have sinned. He's in a more powerful position to justify himself than Saul ever was. And yet he humbles himself and repents more quickly than Saul ever did. And right now, I'll tell you right now, here, here's the, this, this, is making, this, this is where God's ways are not our ways. This is where the love and the forgiveness and the grace of God just is unfathomable to us. There is no way that I would ever let this guy have any position of power in any ministry after this event. There's no way I would ever let him anywhere near my daughter's. In the Bible, you know, you've read the Bible over and over and over again. And the Bible, God has made himself so clear that this is sinful. This is wrong. He has no tolerance for this stuff. In fact, God has made this so clear in the Bible so much that when most non-Christians read the Bible, they get the idea that God is a mean, judgmental God, not a loving God. That's how clear he's made his moral standard. That's how clear he's made his his consequences for moral sin. Everyone in the world, when they read the Bible, the first thing they see is a judgmental God who punishes sin and has a high, high moral standard. And everything in us, everybody would be horrified by this. It doesn't matter how loose your morality is, how conservative it is, no one will want this guy anywhere near them. And yet God's going to respond and say, I forgive you. The true point of this story is not the affair, but how jacked up David's heart is at this moment. Yet even in that darkness, even in that gross violation of moral sin, there's still something in him that wants God enough that he's able to repent. And even in all this grossness and violation, there's something that God sees in David's heart that none of us would ever see. And God says, I forgive you. And if that doesn't set you up for the cross, I don't know what does. And you need to understand there is so much going on in this chapter. And it is the absolute depravity of man just laid out bare bones. And yet even in absolute depravity where we would just write this person off, judge them, condemn them, scarlet letter them, and pound them into the ground in our moral judgment and condemnation, there's still something in that person's heart that God says, that's redeemable. That's forgivable. And, and, and God does not respond with condemnation. 
but grace and love. And this should be something, and here's the other thing too, this flies so much in the face of legalism. Because what does the law demand? Death, abuse of power, rape, murder, self-justification, the high-handed sin kind of way, like, oh, well, the sword just kills people, the total callousness, everything here. You'd be convicted, convicted in an instant in the court of law. Premeditated, lack of remorse, everything there. In a court of law, and according to the law of God, everything demands his death. And yet justice is violated for the sake of grace. And if there's this scene in Israel's idolatry with the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32, and God forgiving that, are two of the greatest examples corporately and individually of how grace and forgiveness always supersedes the law in God's mind. And I think that's very important to understand that, yes, and this, this is what's so powerful, is the world reads this Bible and they see first and foremost a dominant, judgmental, angry God all the time. But when you really read these stories, you're like, my goodness, if there's anywhere that the judgment of God should have come out so powerfully and strong, it's Exodus 32 with the golden calf and this. And yet with just mere repentance, the law is literally just overdone with, with grace and forgiveness. And if that doesn't make you appreciate the grace of God, appreciate what the cross has really done, because that's exactly what the cross is. Even people who are highly legalistic and say, you must, you must, you must, you must, you must, and the same thing, they don't even realize that all their sins have been completely overlooked by the cross. The minute you say, I accept Jesus Christ, God has thrown the law out the window. Now, I don't mean he's thrown the law out the window as in you can do whatever you want now with no consequences, because that's what the next chapters are about. Oh, he's going to reap the whirlwind. But the, the condemnation of separation from God for all eternity is thrown out the window, that part of the law. And, and these stories are powerful on who we really truly are and what it really means to be forgiven and who God really is in the midst of sin and repentance. And that's the real point of this story. The real point is what God is doing with David, despite all this. But here's the other part, too. We tend to focus purely on the judgment of God and get in line and do not endure, right? Or we tend to go into God is love and God is grace, and we overlook consequences and we overlook the need for obedience. We're not very good embracing the intention. Most denominations, most people's personalities, whatever you go, they tend to lean more towards the judgment, black and white, or they tend to lean more towards the, yeah, but they're a good person after all. So and they tend to be soft on the consequences. It's a personality thing, a denomination thing. It's all kinds of things. But God maintains the tension perfectly. There's an incredible act of grace, but he also goes into serious consequences mode. And he says this, verse 7. I chose you to be king over Israel. I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and put your master's wives into your arms. I also gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all that somehow seemed insignificant, I would have given you even more as well. Notice the 
You think you're powerful and cocky and you can do whatever you want because you're the most powerful thing? Everything you have is because I gave it to you. Why have you shown much more? Why have you shown contempt for the word of Yahweh by doing evil in my sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and you have taken his wife as your own. You have killed him with a sword in the Ammonites. And so now the sword will never depart from your house, for you have despised me by taking the wife of Uriah the Hittite as your own. This is what Yahweh says, I am about to bring disaster on you from the inside of your own household. Right before your eyes, I will take your wives and hand them over to your companion, and he will have sexual relations with your wives in broad daylight. Although you have acted in secret, I will do this thing before all of Israel in broad daylight. Now the first consequence for this sin is, I will bring the sword to your house and it will never depart. Now why does God say it that way? Of all the ways that he could say that, he says, I will bring the sword to your house and it will never leave. Yes, because it's exactly what David said. He's using David's own words against him. David's like, oh, the sword comes to one man's house and not another, and we don't know why. And God says, oh, I'm bringing that sword to your house. And we all know why. You brought the sword to Uriah's house, I'm going to bring it to your house. You took another man's wife, I'm going to let somebody take your wife's. That's the second consequence. Notice all this is poetic justice. Most of the consequences we reap is what we've done to somebody else. And what God is saying is, you're going to reap the exact same thing that you did to somebody else. You brought death in their house, death is going to come to yours. You took somebody's wife, somebody's going to take your wife. Wives. But then he amps it up. The sword briefly came to Uriah's house. It's going to stay with you. And you took one wife. You're going to lose multiple wives. And all of God's consequences are poetic. It's called talion loss. An eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. And remember we talked about that in Exodus. God didn't literally mean if somebody punches you and you lose your tooth, punch them back and take their tooth. The idea is that the consequences must fit the crime. And that's what God's doing. He's making sure that it fits the crime. Then David exclaimed to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan replied to David, yes. <laughs> now he says, oh, that's okay. I'm glad you repented. We're all good now. He says, no, you have. Yahweh has forgiven your sin. You are not going to die. Nonetheless, because you have treated Yahweh with such contempt in this matter, the son who has been born to you will certainly die. Now, this is one of the most difficult passages for us. We have a hard time understanding, like, wait a minute, the sins of the father shouldn't be visited on the children. Why is that son going to die? And, and David isn't. And, and, and I don't really have an answer for that right here. I wish I could tie this all up in a nice emotional theological bow for you, but I think by now you realize I can't do that and I refuse to do that in a lot of passages. It is what it is. Now what I will say is, first, we've already seen very clearly that sins of individuals do affect corporately. We are not ignorant enough to think that our sin does not affect other people. Lots of kids are struggling with drug addictions because moms 
was on drugs while they were in utero. And lots of kids are struggling with things because they've been abused. And consequences of parents always overflow into children. And you're like, yeah, but this is different. This is a direct act. Yes, it is. But the other thing I'm going to say is this. One, it is part of the poetic justice. I'm not trying to rationalize or justify, and I don't have to because it's God. God could have kept this out of the Bible. Here's the other thing I would like to say, too. As hard as it is to wrestle with this, it would be a lot easier for God to just be politically correct and leave that out and lie to us. And we would have never been the wiser. And we would have this nice little neat um, Jesus box where they, we could just be comfortable and hand them to everybody and he'd feel warm and squishy for everybody to hold. But God doesn't. He lays his character out in every kind of way. And he does not blush. And he does not justify. He says, I am what I am and I am good and you deal with it. There is no real reason for me to justify this because God doesn't even justify it. And he can deal with his own justification on his own. But the other sense, I do, doesn't mean I'm just going to like ignore it either. That's not healthy either. But So I can't completely deal with this because it's not meant to. But the other thing I would say is poetic justice this. David has completely wiped out the line of Uriah. By killing Uriah, he will have no kids. His name and his line will not continue. And by now you've figured out that, that God takes lineages and descendants very seriously. And in this sense, that David is going to lose his child because he's taken the child of Uriah. There's another sense, too, where this might actually be protecting David's Uriah's inheritance if, if he has other relatives because it would probably go to his brother or his brother's kids. If David has a child, he could claim the inheritance of Uriah through this child. And that's a gross violation. When we get to Kings and we see Ahab see somebody else's inheritance, the Bible almost marks it up as one of the worst sins you could ever commit. Because you're taking the inheritance, the future life of other kids and their descendants. You're wiping out a line. And so by removing this child, it removes David's ability to claim an inheritance that does not rightfully belong to him, which would have been another power grab move. And then there's so many other things that we probably have no idea of because we're not part of that culture, and we have no idea because we're not part of the cosmic understanding of the universe of what this could potentially lead to and other things. And all I will say is what I say to everything. Ultimately, and when it comes down to it, the reputation of God is consistently over and over and over good. And that no matter what moral finger you feel you can point at God, and no matter what thing that you might rightfully emotionally struggle with in God's character, that everything else about God's character is just still way greater than anything you're going to find in anybody else's character. And ultimately, it boils down to the cross. And you have a choice to make constantly when you come to these stories. These are difficult. I'm not, I'm not saying they're not. And, and we're not done. When we get to Kings, oh, there's a challenging one coming. And when you come to these, and you're just like, oh, God, this doesn't make sense. It seems to violate your character, but it doesn't because it's him. But we have to understand that he's got a way bigger perspective than we can ever imagine. And two... Ultimately, and you have to rest on the fact of this. This all has to be interpreted through the cross. This is the same God that kills his own son for you. 
And that's the wrestle. That's the tension. And, and when you get to the prophets, they'll wrestle with a lot of things about God, and they don't release the tension. When you get to the book of Job, and Job is asking the question of why good people suffer, God never gives you an answer. Not one time in the entire Bible does God ever tell you why good people suffer. When you get to the New Testament, you're given hints of building character. But any human can ask the question, isn't there better ways to build my character? <laughs> like, really, God, couldn't you come up with a better system than suffering? And the Bible doesn't give you answers. You, you just you have to wrestle with this God that is beyond you and not fathomable and not easily boxed. And you have a question then to ask. And the grand scheme of his character and everything you see, is he worthy of bowing down to? And, and if God wanted to make this easy for you, the Bible would probably be half the size. <laughs> but he's presenting who he really is. And that's my best answer. So this is the consequences for his actions. Verse 15, Then Nathan went home, and Yahweh struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and the child became very ill. Then David prayed to God for the child and fasted. He would even go and spend the night lying on the ground, and the elders of the house stood over him and tried to lift him up from the ground, but he was unwilling, and he refused to eat food with them. So he's mourning. On the seventh day the child died, but the servants of David were afraid to inform him that the child was dead. And for they said, while the child was still alive, he would not listen to us. And he spoke to him, how can we tell him that the child is dead? And he will do, what, what harm will he do to himself? When David saw that his servants were whispering to one another, he realized that the child was dead. So David asked the servants if the child was dead, and they replied, yes, he is dead. So David got up from the ground, bathed, put on oil, and changed his clothes. And he went up to the house of Yahweh and worshipped. And then he went and entered the palace and he requested that food be brought to him, and he ate. His servants said to him, What is this that you have done? While the child was still alive, you fasted and wept. And once the child was dead, you got up and ate food. And he replied, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, because I thought perhaps Yahweh will show pity and the child will live. Because there are times that God has relented and given grace in that situation. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Am I able to bring back the dead? I will go to him, but he cannot return to me. Now David's logic basically here is, I've already done tons of mourning. I knew the child was going to die. I knew he was going to, but I mourned and I mourned and I mourned and there's like practically no more mourning left in me. And the fact is I can't do anything about it. Now part of this too might be that idea like when you have like older grandparents or whatever or some family member and they're close to death and they've just been suffering for a long, 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 long time. And then when you die, there's almost a relief in it. And you've already been mourning their death and sickness for a long time because they've suffered for so long that when you die, there's, then when they die, there's almost a relief to it and there's no more mourning left because you've already done it and you're more just happy that they're not suffering more. There could be a little, I mean, I know that's not an exact connection and parallel, but there could be some of that involved there as well. But here's the other thing. This is not a statement about children going to heaven. I don't have an answer for that. I'm going to tell you right now. All I know is God is good. And God is just. And God is love. And I honestly don't know what to say about a child who dies at a young age and where they're going. I just rest on the fact that God is the one who created all things. He 
designed all things. He is good all the time. And he is just and loving and merciful and gracious all the time. And I honestly don't know what I would say to anybody who went through that. But I would also say you cannot use this as a biblical verse to justify children going to heaven. And here's why. One, there is no concept of heaven in the First Testament. Nobody goes to heaven in the First Testament. Heaven is where God and really strange, angelic, divine beings are. Every single time you're given a vision of heaven in the First Testament, it always involves like winged angels and eyes all over them or multi-headed beast and God in a temple. That's it. We know very clearly from the Bible that nobody goes to heaven pre the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. No humans are ever in heaven in any visions. Nobody's ever gone to heaven, come back to tell them what heaven is like. In the ancient world, heaven is a temple on top of the sky where gods and strange divine beings live. That's it. And when you die, we already kind of talked about this with Saul, you go into some kind of soul sleep. I don't know if that's even accurate, but that's the best word we have at this moment because nothing's been revealed to us. You, You die and you stay in this realm, you stay in this dimension, you stay in the earth somehow, something, whatever, we don't know, and you're a shadowy experience called Sheol. And the First Testament makes it very clear that all people who died before Christ were in Sheol, a shadowy afterlife kind of a grave place. And that's what the Bible says theologically. That's how everybody thought theologically. And so when a person in that time period says that he will come to, I will go to him, in the context of his theology, in the context of the narrators inspired by the Bible, God theology, that is the grave. It's the shadowy existence of Sheol. And maybe little kids go to heaven and they do, and I would love that, and that'd be awesome, and that would be so the grace of God, but I don't know. There's no verse in the Bible that tells me what happens. And I can make theological guesses and make a pretty good argument for why they do, but then again, it's just a theological guess. And and I really don't know what I would ever say to a mother other than just, God is good, and we need to just trust in his love and his character. But please, please don't... And you may disagree with me flat out right now and say, no, that's wrong. And that's your right. Um, But I would ask you to defend it with the Bible if you're going to disagree with me. But I would just say, unless you're absolutely sure from a word of God coming to you that you're supposed to interpret this verse there, I would just warn against caution of using this verse to justify a hope to a mother that that kid's in heaven when we don't know. And I'd rather err on the side of I don't know than wishful theological interpretation. Does that kind of make sense? Those emotions are too dangerous to play with. With a, It's kind of like this. I've heard scholars say, do not build a theological argument on a verse that was in the context of making a different theological argument. Does that make sense? When people prove, oh, nobody will get married when you go to heaven, because Jesus says you're going to be like angels not given a marriage. That was not the theological point of that argument. The theological point of the argument is there is a resurrection. And he makes one side comment. 
And people build a theological argument about marriage on a passage that's making a theological argument about resurrection. And there's a danger of building theology on passages that weren't even making that theological point. And so all I would say is just, I would just, if you disagree with me, I would just say, please, I just hearken caution and, and do a lot more research and a lot more studying before you disagree with me. And you have every right, and I could be wrong. I'm willing to admit that. But I'm just saying, just, just do be very confident. Be very confident. Um, hope is a very dangerous thing to pass out if it's not done right. So, so David comforted but with his wife, Bathsheba, and he went to her and had marital relations with her. She gave birth to a son, and David named him Solomon. And now Yahweh loved this child and sent word through Nathan and the prophet, and he would, should be called Jedidiah for Yahweh's sake. Notice that still in all this, Bathsheba's gone now. She's never going to be mentioned ever again in the entire book of Samuel. And the only other time she's going to be mentioned is very briefly in a political argument in 1 Kings chapter 1. We have not been told anything about Bathsheba. There is no thing here that said she loved David back. It says that David was comforted by his love for her. It does not say that she loved him back. Maybe she learned to grow and love him over time. I don't know. I'm not going to read into it. But all I'm going to say is there's nothing about her loving him. In fact, in all these stories, there's only one woman that it ever says that loved David. And that was Michael, and he abandoned her and treated her like crap. Every other woman he's taken is never said that she's loved him in return. Now, I'm not saying they didn't grow into it and that things did turn out well one day. I don't know. And that's, and I, I like, a lot of times that's one of my best answers I have for you. I don't know. I, I just rather err on this side of I don't know than let's read into this. So there could be love here, but that's not the point of the story, or God would mention it. So Solomon's born. Now this is a really interesting thing, because it says that God calls him Jedidiah. And Jedidiah basically means like beloved of God, or um, loved of God, God. And it's interesting that there's only th- three times in the entire wor- Bible that this beloved of God is ever mentioned. It's of Solomon, Daniel, and John, the disciple of Jesus. And I and listen, I don't know if there's like a theological message there or not. Okay, I don't know if God is trying to make a point. It's just, it's a very rare phrase that is thrown out by God in the Bible. And I don't know if he's trying to say something special about those three people. Um, I don't know about Solomon. He ended really poorly. Um, but it's a very rare, rare term that God throws out to be God's beloved. But Jedediah never ever mentions again in the Bible. Solomon is never called Jedediah ever again in the Bible. And scholars are just like, why is that there? And it could be that Jedediah is his real name and Solomon is actually his throne name. It's not uncommon for kings to have a birth name that their parents call them. And then when they take the throne, they adopt a name that communicates power in some kind of a way. Solomon could actually be his throne name and Jedediah is his name. Solomon could be his real name, and Jedediah is like a, a term of endearment, a nickname or something like that. Other than that, we don't know. The fact that it's never mentioned again 
is very interesting that the narrator would specifically point that out and then never deal with it again. So I don't know what to do with that phrase. But it could be that he's just setting you up for kings in that kind of a sense. This is a very, very important passage in the story of David because this is where everything is going to change. It's a very powerful statement on humanity, what it means to repent, what it means for God to forgive you, legalism, grace, all that kind of stuff. There's a lot here. But the other thing is, he's going to reap it now. And everything is going to fall apart. And, and, as, and, and we can only put ourselves in his shoes so much because the Bible doesn't psychoanalyze people. But even the very little that we're given, I don't think anybody would want a family like this. This would be depressing to have literally. I mean, I know we've all probably experienced people in our family that have gone the, haven't gone the route that you've hoped for them, children who maybe have not lived up to your expectations in that kind of way, in a way that I can't understand yet. Um, but in the fact that his, literally every single one of his children and everything in his family is literally going to fall apart. It's just going to be absolutely depressing from this point on. So, so Job fought against Rabbah on the Ammonites and captured the royal city. And Job then sent messengers to David saying, I have fought against Rabbah and have captured the water supply of the city. So now assemble the rest of the army and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will capture this city and it will be named for me. So David assembled all the army, went Rabbah and fought against it and captured it. He took the crown of their king from his head. It was gold and it weighed about 75 pounds and held a precious stone. And it was placed on David's head and he also took from the city a great deal of plunder. And he removed the people who were in it and he removed the people who were sorry in it and made them hard, do hard labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and putting them to work at the brick kiln. And this was the policy with the Ammonite seas. And then David and all of his army returned to Jerusalem. Now notice that immediately right after that, the Bible comes right back to the Ammonite conflict. And it goes right back in it, but there's something different now. David's in the thick of it. And there has been some humbling here. But the other thing to remember is, only one time has Yahweh been mentioned now in David's repentance. And Yahweh is not going to be mentioned again until chapter 15. And so David has kind of learned his lesson now. I need to be where I'm supposed to be. But the fact that he's also enslaving all these people and putting in hard labor and still not going to mention the word name Yahweh anymore from this point on seems to suggest that there's not really been a true humbling that has happened. Like a to the core in every part of his life humbling. Yes, he's humbled himself. He's repented of that sin. He has been truly forgiven. But has that really rippled over into his full character in every area of himself as a king? Not really. Not completely. Going to be a lot more consequences to give him a lot more humbling. Eventually, he's got to learn this lesson because that's what God does with all of us.